Hey, you, you, why are you here? We're, here? we're here to glorify God, edify the saints, evangelize the world. We're here to glorify God. We glorified Him in worship, and now we're going to glorify Him by studying the inerrant, infallible Word of the living God. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 46, and then stand as we read the Word of God together. What you have in your hands is a precious gift that people in this world have died just to possess. And we have it in volumes. Let's start out with the Word of God today. The greatest commandment and who is Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How does, the, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. This is the word of God. God. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you speak to our hearts. And Lord, right now, today, I ask that every person will set the world aside for just a moment and be ready to receive something special for them today. When the word goes out, Lord, you speak to each heart. You do not miss a soul. And I pray that we will hear and heed the things that God says to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. There will be a day when the kingdom of God is established. And when that kingdom is established, do you think we're going to have law and order in that kingdom? Okay, let's try that again. <laughs> when that kingdom is established, do you think that we will have law and order in that kingdom? And you're going to say, yes, that's right, yes. And there will be commandments that will be followed in that kingdom. And we're going to learn about those today. Now, we're teaching about the last week of Jesus' life, and it's Tuesday, and on Tuesday, many things happened in Jesus' life. There was a plethora of things. He got confronted by the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians. Last week, it was the Sadducees questioning the resurrection, and Jesus responded to them when they gave him this great, big, hyperbolic example, and he responded to the, the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection who do not believe in angels, do not believe in demons, do not believe in an afterlife. That's why they are sad, you see. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> You've heard that like 12,000 times. But anyway, but it, Jesus said to the Sadducees who do not believe these things, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. The scripture is powerful and God is all-powerful This word tells us a little bit about our God, 
But for eternity, we'll be learning more and more and more about him. And we will never grasp who God is in his totality all through foreverdom. But that's how great and marvelous and incredible our God is. Now, when you think about God being all-powerful, since God created us, since God spoke and the stars and the planets and space and everything came into existence, since God spoke and said everything was very good on that sixth day when he created man. It was all very good. Don't you think that we should know about this God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture? Don't you think we should know about this God that created ex nihilo, out of nothing? I have a couple slides here. There's going to be three of them in this sequence. The, te- the teacher here was a lady named Mabel Caldwell. I believe that she te- teaches at Biola University, in their, in their religious department, and she has the doctrine of ex nihilo. And first of all, how God created. It'll come up on the screen here. How God created. First of all, it's by his voice. God said and it happened. He repeated the, frame, the, the refrain, God said and it happened. The Bible reminds the reader of the immense power of the creator. When you can speak something into existence, you are all powerful. You are outside of your creation. He's not in his creation. He's outside it. He's transcendent. That is our God. Now, the next slide that she presents in her class, she has actually a plethora of them. I've just chosen three. A world which he identifies as good, very good when he completed his creation. This world is good and purposeful. And notice this. He created a world that's ordered. When you think of God, think of structure, think of order. Everything that is done precisely on schedule. There is no there's no whimsicalness with God in the sense that, that he just, just does things off the cuff. Everything is thought out, planned, done perfectly. Now, the next slide, the creation ex nihilo. Now, this is, a, this is important. The central issue that separates Christianity and other religions is a creation that God just spoke it into existence. Secularists, atheists aim at this doctrine because the Christian worldview collapses if you undercut this doctrine of the creation ex nihilo. Judeo-Christian faith believes we did not emerge by means of a cosmic accident, but by a, a direct supernatural work of God, of the creator. Now, we call this the cosmological argument, creation ex nihilo out of nothing, that whoever created this thing is, is outside of time, is incredibly knowledgeable, is all-powerful, all knowledge, he has all wisdom, and he created us Exactly like he wanted to create us. He created us in his image. In his image. So just remember those facts. Now, since God is all-powerful, since he has given mankind his word as his guide, and I hope you're in his word every day. I hope you are. It's your guide for life. Since he expects mankind to know what was written in his word, he holds us responsible. He says, Have you not, are you not mistaken? Because you don't know the, the, the scriptures or the power of God. Have you, aren't you mistaken? You must know the scriptures and what they say. Since God holds everybody accountable and how he revealed himself to God, don't you think it's prudent to be in his word daily? Yes. Okay. Don't you think it's prudent to do what the word says? Yes. Okay. Thank you for those answers. Our world denies the resurrection. Do you know that there's 8 billion people on the planet And the vast majority deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even within Christendom, it's questioned, questionable Christendom. 
If you don't believe in the resurrection, you can't be a Christian. It's just that simple. But there's people in that venue that don't believe it and claim Christianity. Our world denies the creation account. When God said, let there be light, folks, I believe that's what happened. There was light. When he spoke the skies and the seas and all the stuff into existence, that's what happened. Now, God is going to speak here quite soon to us. And I believe we're going to hear this word. And that's going to be when the rapture of the church comes. And we're going to hear that word spoken to us. And we will be gathered up to Christ to meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ shall rise first, but we're going to be right on their heels. And we're going to be raised up to be with our Lord. God will speak. Now, that's the rapture of the church, which we believe in. But there's also a second coming that I believe comes seven years later. And that second coming, Jesus comes to, to take back planet Earth for good, to establish his kingdom. And he'll deal with the Antichrist and the false prophet with a word, with a word. And they'll be thrown into the lake of fire, separated from God forever, with a word, all-powerful God. Our world denies an all-powerful God, but they also deny that how could God be involved in his creation? Now, I hope that you believe this. Now, there's a word in theology that is kind of uncommon. If you came on Tuesday nights, you would recognize this word, but it is imminent. Imminent, not imminent, but imminent. And it means God is present in the universe, involved, with, involved on the earth. People can't experience God, and that's what we want to do here today. We want, right here today, we want to experience our God that the Spirit of God falls upon us, we hear from God, we sense His presence, that's the utmost desire of the believer's lives. And God acts in history and influences events. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's teaching on Mars Hill. And he sees the epic and stoic philosophers. And he introduces him. He says, I see you've made idols to all these gods, but let me introduce you to the true God. And then he starts out with, God, who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples like you worship your false gods in, made by humans' hands, nor does he need any humans' hands to serve him in any way. He is God. He is, he is, he is all-powerful. He is self-existent in himself. But he says he's made from one blood every nation to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has, he has appointed their predetermined times and the boundaries of their dwellings that men might seek for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. He is imminent. He is close. He is intimately involved. If you're a deist, you believe that God created, took his hands off, and that's it. It's all just going the way it's going. We're not. We're theists. We believe in a God that is intimately involved in his creation. So this week, Jesus is God. Jesus is the great I am we may want to listen to what he has to say, the greatest commandment, and who is Messiah? Now, I want to preface this, state this, this, this lesson with this. There are people that take law, the law and legalism to an extreme. And there are people who deny the law in any way, shape, or form. They would be antinomian, against the law. There is no law. Okay, and I think there's a balance here in between, and that's what we're going to try to discover today. Jesus is going to talk to a lawyer. A lawyer will ask a question, verses 34 through 36. But then the Pharisees heard that he, that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, 
ask him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So remember, Jesus silenced the Sadducees and the people in the temple. Remember, there's thousands of people there. It's Passover week. The Sadducees are trying to get him in front of all this population of people. And Jesus silenced them. And they were astonished at what Jesus said. This lawyer heard what Jesus was saying. You're going to see this in just a second in Mark when I read that section. He heard what Jesus was saying, and he was one of the ones that was astonished also. And he's coming to ask this question. So the Pharisees have their plan. They think they're going to use this lawyer for their purposes, but this lawyer lawyer is already predisposed to following Jesus, to, to, to seek out who Jesus is. So the Pharisees missed that this guy was present with the Sadducees' teaching. And in Mark, it says this, Mark 12, 28. Then one of the scribes, that was the lawyer, came having heard them reasoning together, talking about the Sadducees, perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well. He was astonished and asked him the first commandment. What's the greatest commandment of all? So the question is this. The question is posed by this lawyer. Which commandment is the most important? Which commandment is the most important? What do you think? Which first, which they are for? Which commandment is the most important? Then I have a picture of the Ten Commandments. It'll come up here on the screen. Most of you are familiar with it. Probably some of you have actually memorized this. I think it's a good thing to know and, and to have memorized. But you shall have no other gods before me. Remember the first four are directed towards God. The last six are the people. You shall have no other gods for, before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet. Or covet. That's the Ten Commandments. That's the moral law that's summed up for us today. Now, I want to ask you a question or suggest something to you. Our society is filled with taking the Lord's name in vain. And why is that? Because there's no fear of God in the society. There's no fear of God in the culture. So, the Lord's name in vain. Not to take the Lord's name in vain. That, the word vain in the Hebrew is shaw, S-H-A-W. It means nothingness and empty. It's more than a swear word. Certainly when you say G-D or... J.C. In a, in a critical manner, unequivocally, that, those are swear words, okay? Uh, but it's also using the Lord's name or reputation lightly. We must represent the Lord as he is to the world around us. If we do not, we are taking his name in vain. Do you see this? This is, this is a huge thing to understand. So how might this look? How might this look? Well, carelessly using his name, and Christians do this all the time. Oh, God. Oh, my God. And we say this casually. And we say this casually. I would suggest you take a little pause with that and think about what you're saying. We want to be sure that we're, we're not misusing his name. Now, we can say, oh, God, help me. Or, oh, my God, come. But it's not usually said with that. It's usually out of a surprise or a frustration or something like that. And secondly, ascribing to God something that is not true about him. My God, now listen to this, I think this is untrue because it's not biblical. 
My God, and you fill in the blanks, and my blanks are, allow same-sex marriage because of love. Now, that would be against the word of God. And if you believe that, and there are gay theologians today that can convince you that this is all true, okay? I've heard many debates on this, and if you're not savvy in the word of God, you can be taken down the primrose path of lies and believe it. But, or transgenderism because it's love. It's not that we don't love these people. The best thing that we can do, the most loving thing we can do is tell them that this is against God and it will end you in hell, separated from God. You don't want to go there. You're not any worse than I am. We all have sin, just that you're trying to condone this as a natural way of life. I'm not condoning my lust, jealousy, vanity, greed, lewdness, slander, and arrogance, and folly. That's my list. What's yours? Okay? I mean, I'm like, we all have something. It's not representing God to the world around you, not standing for the truth of his word. You get the picture. Anything that misrepresents God is taking his name in vain, even though we try to cloak it with love. Now, I have a picture for you. Now, we had a video of this person several months ago, Miss Pentecost, playing off the word Pentecost. Now, if you see this, well, it should be up there. Okay. Delivers a, now, this is at the United Methodist Church in Bloomington, Illinois. Now, this is tragic. This is the transgender person right here, okay, extolling transgenderism. And let me say this. This is not innocent fun that's going on in libraries and kids' kindergarten classes and that sort of thing. This is indoctrination to a view that is anti-God, against God. This is a worldview that's being forced on our children today. This is taking God's name in vain, not representing God as he is, as he's revealed himself in Scripture. I want to know what God thinks. I could care less what the government thinks, what the media thinks, what, every, what, the, what the National Hockey League thinks, what the NBA thinks, what the NFL thinks, and what baseball thinks. I don't care what they think. I care about what God thinks. It's in his word. And we as the people of God are under the cover, under the constraints of, of believing what the word says. So, now, thinking about the law going forward, thinking about the law, what people generally miss is this. The law is viewed as a whole, not individually, as a whole. If you break one, you break them all. James 2.10 will come up on the screen. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. Look, at we cannot keep the law. And we're going to get into this more and more, and you will see that it's an impossibility to keep the law, and you will see more and more what really the purpose of the law is. Verse 37 through 34, love God first and people second. So Jesus is going to answer the question. Watch what he says. Jesus said to him, and by the way, everyone in earshot in that temple area. Again, thousands of people on the temple grounds during, during Passover. And he's speaking to them, but everybody else is hearing this. And to you today, and to the billions of people on the earth that have read this text, he's speaking to you. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he sums up the Ten Commandments that way. Okay, make sure you understand that. He's summing up the Ten Commandments. Now, when you think about Jesus saying, love the Lord your God first above all, I want you to think about our world today and the direction that it's going. I want you to think about secular humanists. This does not set well with secular humanists. Secular humanists consider humanity the top rung of the ladder. Humans are the epitome of everything. And we're, we're evolving. Can you imagine this is evolving? I mean, look at me. I am not evolving. I am devolving right before your eyes. <laughs> if they have a concept of God, which most of them don't, he's a little God. A little God that they boss around. A little God that's not really in charge. A little God that makes you the big God and you want the little God to do what you want. That's a wrong concept of God. That's an improper view. Most secular humanists promote the God myth philosophy. This philosophy, this worldview is being taught to your kids in public education today. It is being jammed down their throats. And the kids, and I don't want to say just the kids, the whole population is being drawn into this hook line and sinker. Now I have a couple pictures here just falling for something hook, line, and sinker. You know what that is? When you've taken the bait, the next guy took the bait. This is the picture of the guy taking the bait. And this is what's happening in the culture today as people have been hooked. You know what this is? World philosophies have deceived. Have deceived the masses. And people are buying into this because remember, you tell a brain something over and over and over, that this is the truth. The brain starts to, con starts to comprehend that as the truth. Don't fall for it. Stephanie Bond, she's another teacher, she's another uh, lady teacher on secular humanism and overview. She has a whole slide presentation. I've selected these two. Says this, what does a secular world, humanist worldview look like? Well, it shares some of the tenets of postmodernism and Marxism, all without God. In a secular humanistic worldview, there is no God, no self-existed being. There is no revelation from God or God. There is no spirit. People are highly evolved animals, but do not have immortal souls. There is no life after death. Now, isn't that about the most sad thing that you can ever think of? If this is it, if this is it, go take all the cocaine you can get, Take all the hair, do whatever you have to do, because it, this is it. This is it. This would be the most de depressing, discouraging thing that could possibly happen, that this would be it. Goodness. There is, only, there is only this physical world, the here and now. Nature, matter is self-existing. It claims that only those things which can be proved through the scientific method, observable, teachable, reproduce, or te reproducible, is accepted as true, Science is, in essence, your God. Your God. And I think she's hit a home run with this. She's got a whole lecture series on this. This is just a couple excerpted from her lecture. So, the secularist worldview is diametrically opposed to God's view. With God, everything starts with Him. He's the highest rung. As a matter of fact, He is high as the heavens are above the earth. His ways are higher than our ways. 
his thoughts than our thoughts. That's what it says in Isaiah. God gave Israel commandments and laws to be different from the other nations around them. Remember, they had civil law, ceremonial law, dietary laws, and moral laws for the nation of Israel to be different, to be different. The first, the first three, civil, civil, ceremonial, and dietary, those are for the nation of Israel. I believe the moral law has been carried forward, and Jesus confirms that. Okay? So just a thought, just a thought. Now, thinking about the law. All of God's laws do two things. Provide for and protect his people. God's not just being a killjoy when he says, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He's not just being a killjoy. He, these are things that are good for you. You shall know the gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do not kill, adultery, steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. These, these are all things that are, are good for humanity. Provide for and protect. So how does Jesus view the commandments of God? It's a high priority to him. It's a high priority. It is not something that is just kind of whisked away like we do so often in our culture. He summed it up with the two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God. Now watch this. With how much of your heart? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, implying all those other things. Heart, soul, mind, all those things. So, love. You know, the, I didn't put the word love up here because I've mentioned it so many times. It's agape, agapeo in this context. And it means it's a direction of the will. It means I'm going to love someone even if they don't love me. It's loving the unlovable. God loves us. Do you think we're always really loving and great and wonderful to God? He loves the unlovable. He loves us. He loves people. Loves us. But it also means this. Agape also means doing what is best for someone, not necessarily what they want. Did you hear that? Real love is doing what is best for someone, not necessarily what they want. It's telling them the truth. Telling them the truth. So, what stands out to you when you talk about this, this statement? The level of commitment is all your heart and the focus is love. God is to permeate every, every portion of our being. We love him with all of our being. Real love for God is an all-out commitment to him. Obeying him shows we love him. Let me say that again. When we obey God and his commandments, it shows that we love him. Now, I'll give you a few verses here. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. You see it there. 14.23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. Now, I want you to think about this. This thing that Jesus is asking us to do, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. this does not speak of a casual relationship with God. This is not a just-in-case, it's all real. I think I'll go through the process and, and, and just so hopefully I can slide into heaven. This is not talking about that kind of relationship. The order is this. Love God and love people. Loving God first will result in loving people. 
Let me say that again. Loving God as your highest priority is the only way that we can love people. It amazes me that God loves us even when we are so casual with him. Casual. When we ignore him, when we grieve him, he still loves us. He loves us implicitly. It's an amazing God. You know, when when Jesus was quoting these verses, he was quoting the Shema. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. That hear is to listen intelligently and intently with with the sense that I'm going to do what this says. I'm not just hearing and letting it go one year, ear out the other, but I intend to do what God says. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's where he's getting that from. We are to love God first. That's the greatest commandment. Now, let me ask you this question. What about loving your neighbor as yourself? That's not so easy. Because I don't know about you, but there's some creepy neighbors out there. They might look at me and think, I'm a creepy neighbor. We're all creepies to one another. Yeah. How about your mean boss? How about the guy that rubs you wrong on the team? He's not doing his part on the team. Come on, dude. Step up. Step up. Do you mean I'm supposed to love them? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. Loving your neighbor as yourself is not in the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you see that. It's implied. But Leviticus 19.18 is what Jesus is quoting. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, your neighbor. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. This is a command to you, the people of God, to love your neighbor as yourself. The first four commandments are God-directed. Number one priority for all of us, God first. God first. The last six are directed at people, are people-directed. In obeying the last six commandments, now hear this, demonstrates love and respect for our neighbor. How so? How so? Well, if I honor my father and my mother, I'm loving and respecting them. If I don't kill somebody, I'm loving and respecting them. (laughs) If I'm not committing adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, or coveting, I'm loving and respecting my neighbor. Now, don't you sometimes like feel like killing the guy next door? I mean, there's, there's, there's truth here. There's truth. We'll get to this in just a second. Why we don't. Why we don't. <laughs> or the gal. Okay, that's right. What is covet? Okay, what is covet? It permeates humanity, particularly in the West, but it, it's all over the world. You can covet and not have anything. It, it, live in the... In, in, in the Barrenness desert, and you can cover some guy's cam- covet some guy's camel. But anyway, coveting. I mean, it's the inordinate, ungoverned desire, selfish desire to have what is not yours for self-gain, for self-pleasure. And think about this. God knows that possessions will never make anyone happy for long. What happens when you get your new car? You've heard this before. You pamper it, you wash it, you wax it. You park it 25,000 miles away in the parking lot. Two years later, you're squeezing in because it's already been dented. Some creep 
has scratched it that you're supposed to love. Yes, he's, yeah. <laughs> this is life, it, it, really, okay? So everything fades, folks. You know entropy. We've talked about this before. Everything wears down around you. Rockefeller, I have a slide here for this, was asked a question. John D. Rockefeller was asked this question, how much money is enough? His answer was this, just a little bit more. This guy made Bill Gates and Warren Buffett look like paupers. Just a little more billions, and then I'll be happy. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with it, with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. The money God will never satisfy you. You know, we need enough. In Proverbs it says, give me enough bread for the day. Give me enough for the moment. Give me enough. Don't give me too much, lest I forget about you, God. Just give me what I need for the day. The money God will not satisfy. It only makes you want more, just like sin. Sin is the same way. It never satisfies. Always makes you want more as your life spirals down. It's always meant to hurt you. So, remember, agape love is the direction of the will. I choose to love. It also involves doing what is best for another, just to recap. Loving my neighbor as myself is loving the unlovable. That is what God wants me to do. I am honoring Jesus' commandment to love when I love my neighbor as myself. Now, I want you to process this. In Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, helps us understand what love does. Let me say that again. This will help us understand what love does. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells what, us what love is. Remember, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. Love does not delight, 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 delight in evil, but desires the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. That's what, what love is. But what does love do? Ephesians 5, 28 and 29 will tell us, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Agape is himself. It's all about agape. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but here's the key, nourishes and cherishes it. What does love do? Nourishes and cherishes. Provides for and protects. That's what love does. Provides for and protects. What love does not do. Love does not devour. Love does not degrade. Love does not destroy. And love does not pay back in kind. Try that one on. Try that one on in your marriage when your wife bugs you or your husband bugs you. You bug me, I want to bug you. You would just, you know, no, we, we aren't to do that. How do I love like this? That's the question. How do I love like this? I can tell you right now, it's not a flesh thing, it's a God thing. Galatians 5.20 elucidates this clearly. Walking in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking means living. You are living yielded to the Holy Spirit, not to your flesh. Remember your flesh. Look at We are trapped here in this flesh. This guy will come out every now and then. 
You want to stuff him down. You want him down here, but every now and then he'll pop up. And now it's so thrilling when he pops up because there's going to be nothing but trouble when that dude pops up. So we So what will walking in the spirit produce? The fruit of the spirit. And that fruit of the spirit starts with love. Love. In Galatians 5:22, the fruit of the spirit is love. And it's a singular, fruit, not fruits, fruit. And from love emanates joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control? Yes, yeah, self-control. You don't have to say or do all the stuff that you're thinking about. You can have self-control. That's what the spirit life does. As To love Jesus as Jesus commands requires full submission to God. You can't do it by promises. You can't do it by wishing and hoping. The only way to pull this off is the Jesus way, not your way. Okay, so that's a very important concept. Now, also, process this one. Love is not simply a word. We say, I love you, so casually. It's like past the butter. Casual. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I think it's important that those we love know that we love them. I think using our words is important. But more important is this. Love is demonstrated by action. By action. Treating someone awfully and tagging on I love you is the greatest form of hypocrisy. Doesn't that just hit you right between the peepers? I mean, hit, you know, it can hit all of us. 1 John 3.18, let us not love by word or tongue, but indeed and in truth. Real love is demonstrated, folks. It's way more than words. Way more than words. 41 through 46, Jesus will turn the tables on the Pharisees. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, finally, saying, what do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, you have to catch this. Yahweh says to Adonai. Kurios, and if you look it up in, in the New Testament, it's kurios. But in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh to Adonai. These are God titles. Sit, sit at my right hand, and I'll make your enemies a footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he a son? No one was able to answer him a word nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. The questions, the testing of Jesus stops at this point on Tuesday before the Friday cross. That's, what, that's what's happening here. So, in review, Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, that question goes out to every human today. What do you think about the Christ? Who is Jesus to you? In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus was in the northern part of the country, he's looking at the sides of the, of the hill and he sees all these pan gods and all these people worshiping these false gods. And Jesus turns to his disciples and say, who do men say that I am? And they respond. Some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Hopefully, when you're asked that question, who is Jesus? He is the Christ, 
He is the son of the living God. He is my savior. He is my Lord. He is my king. He is my all in all. And then, Peter, Peter, then Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, the Father is drawing. The Father is drawing. No one can come to this. No, you can't come into this Christian faith without God doing a work in you. It's unbelievable. But once he touches you, nothing will shake it. Nothing will shake your foundation. I don't care what happens in this world. I don't care what happens to my body. Well, I care what happens to my body, but, and so do you. But if so, it's going to happen. It's in the process of happening. I will trust in the Lord until I die. That's right. That's where my faith and that's where my trust is. They, they respond with the son of David. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David calls him Lord, Adonai. How can he be his son? How could David be the son of Adonai? He cannot. Jim Bocamp, now this guy's from Calvary Chapel, Green Bay. I didn't know that until I looked him up. I don't see any ratings from him from 2011 on. So I don't know if he's still alive. But he hits the nail right on the head with this quote, quote from Jim Bocamp, Bombcamp. The answer to Jesus' question is that the Messiah cannot be a mere man if he is referred to, a, referred to as Lord by King David. He must indeed be, hear this, the eternal Son of God from all eternity, having come to us in human form. Folks, Jesus is God. He claims it right here. Oftentimes people say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Oh, yes, he did. Plethora of times. Don't have time to get into all that now. Jesus is not a mere man. The Pharisees see the truth, but yet they want to deny the truth. They push the truth down like so many people do. And they still plot to kill Jesus. And he will die on Friday for the sins of the world. In closing, Jesus has demonstrated to the Pharisees that he's real. Hopefully he's demonstrated to everyone in here, he's real. He's real. He's the Christ. He's your only hope. He did miracle after miracle, cast out demons, healed. He did three messianic miracles, three things that only Messiah could do. Every Pharisee knew the rabbinical traditions, that Messiah would heal a blind man from birth. Jesus did. Heal a leper. Jesus did. And then he cast out a demon from someone who was deaf and could not speak. Jesus did. No other person in the history of the world did this except Jesus. This is a messianic miracle. They should have known who Jesus was. And they did not. Now, next question for you is this. What role does Jesus' commandments play in a believer's life? Remember, he summarized the commandments up with the two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. God. Remember, all of God's commandments provide for and protect. Israel, again, was under civil, ceremonial, and dietary law, but the moral law carries forward to today. Now, why do I say that? God is a moral being. You are created in God's image. We are image bearers of God. 
That's what scripture says. We were created in the image of almighty God. We are to be moral beings. Now I want to say some things here so everyone is crystal clear on what I'm saying about the law. The moral law, I believe, continues today. And I think you do too. You don't want anybody to commit adultery with your, your, your loved one. You don't want anybody to kill or steal from you. I think you agree. The moral law continues today, but it's not for righteousness. See, the Jewish people thought if they kept the law perfect, they're going to be righteous before God. Oh, no. Righteousness was God in the Old Testament and the New has always been by faith. By faith. Number two, believers are expected to keep the moral law. Again, not for righteousness. Now, Paul expected us to keep the moral law. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, he says, the law is written on the hearts of every person. So every human in the world knows what right and wrong is according to God's standard. It's written on the hearts of every person. Every person is a lawbreaker, therefore is guilty before God. We are all guilty. We are all guilty. Boom, that's the verdict. Boom, guilty. What do we need? We need an advocate. We need the cross. We need a savior to save us. So the law cannot save. The law can only condemn. The law of the Lord is perfect. We are not perfect. We cannot keep the law. Hard as you try. Really, mm, I want to keep it today. No, you're not. No, you're not. You law, we're all lawbreakers. Salvation in the New Testament is clear. It is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's been always that way through the Old Testament and the New. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves as a gift of God, not of works lest any should boast. Romans 10, 14. These, these next verses are going to tell you exactly what the law does. Number, number one, Romans 10, 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Notice it's for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 2.16, there's a theme here. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, declared righteous. No flesh. Romans 3.20, no one will be declared righteous in sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Galatians 3.13, this is a rescue verse. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The law cannot save. It can only condemn us. We need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus. It cannot save. The law will not make a person righteous in the sight of God. The law cannot save, but can only condemn. The law shows us our need for a Savior. Great comfort on way of the master uses this technique masterfully. He asks a question. He'll ask some young guy, have you ever committed adultery? Yep, yep, I have. What does that mean? What does that make you? It makes you an adulterer, makes you uh, breaking God's law. Have you ever stolen anything? What do you call that guy? A thief. And then he says, well, have you ever lied or, or whatever else? And he says, based on your own testimony, you're an adulterer, lying thief. And he always throws blasphemy of God. Ever used the Lord's name in vain? You're a blasphemer also. How will God let you enter into his heaven when you claim to be a good person? 
and you've broken the laws of God. And God holds you accountable for that law. He holds you accountable. If you're not going to have a Savior, you're doomed. Isn't it great that Christ took all of our mess on the cross? That now I am pure and holy and clean and righteous before a holy God because of the blood of Christ has cleansed me from all my sins? That is a big deal, folks. That is a big deal. So, question. Does Jesus expect his bride to obey his commandments? Yes. The entire New Testament is focused on knowing what Christ taught and obeying his teachings. There's no wiggle room here. Now, there's also a new commandment that Jesus gave us in John 13, 34. Now, this is like one day prior to the cross. Jesus is getting ready to die. He knows he's going to die. So he's sharing extremely important information with his disciples and with us. A new command I give you. Love one another. Again, we can't do that without a close relationship with Jesus. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the new command. Love God and love people. Folks, there's no wiggle room. There is no wiggle room here. Love involves telling people the truth. Our world is sprinting from the truth, sprinting from the truth, finding their own truth in various places. Folks, God's word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Scripture says the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Truth. Love tells people the truth. We have the truth, so it's up to us to share the truth. Truth is this. What would I share? Well, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior. And if you believe and put your trust in Him, you can be saved. Saved from a, a, a condemnation of hell. Hell is real. You tell them the truth about hell. Tell them the truth about heaven. Tell them the truth about how you get to heaven. How you avoid hell. Jesus warned about hell. He said, "If it, don't go there. Whatever you do, it is so awful. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand. Don't go there. Now, Jesus always, always tells you the truth. He tells you the truth. The truth is, good people do not go to heaven. Saved people do. That's the truth. And the truth is, Jesus will return with vengeance, with wrath, and a second coming. Either you can accept Jesus now as your Savior, your Lord, or you can accept him as your judge and your condemner. It's just that simple. Just that simple. Now, there's a truth that I'm going to give you here. Now, everybody focus right now. You've got like two minutes left to zero in. The truth is there is danger ahead. You sense it. The signs are clear. Will you heed the signs? You are living in a generation that has never seen what we are seeing today with our world changing and with America changing at rocket pace. At rocket pace, this one world government globalism thing is real and it is coming. We're on the precipice of that. Truth is the truth. 
whether you believe the signs or not. And I was going to get the ostrich and stick his head in the sand and, and get the monkeys and I can't see and can't hear. You can't cover up your ears and cover up your eyes and pretend it's not happening and not affect you. Your world is changing, folks. You better get serious about Jesus Christ. He is your only rescue. He is. Then I have a sign here, dangerous curve ahead. Now, when you see that sign, I don't know what you do, but I'm going, yeah, sure. It's not that big a deal. I can make it through this. And then Chris will be screaming at me and slow down. Didn't you see the sign? <laughs> and I'm going, I can make it. <laughs> Sorry, I did that again. But anyway, keep that picture up there for just a second, Maritza. Green in his Bible illustrations gives us this next statement. You are driving down the highway when you encounter a sign that reads, dangerous curve ahead. Immediately, you are confronted with making a choice. One can observe the warning and slow down. Two, you can ignore the warning and maintain your rate of speed. Or three, you can defy the warning and speed up. Now, I can at least say I don't do that. <laughs> Maybe... Whatever response you exercise, you will not change the truth of the sign. The curve remains dangerous regardless of whether you acknowledge the fact or not. Danger ahead. It's dangerous to cover your eyes, plug up your ears, pretend everything is just like it was, and not see the signs of the times you're living in. Jesus expect the people when he came to know that he was the Messiah, to know the signs of their times. He expects the same from us today. There are no excuses. Jerusalem was destroyed because they did not know the time of his visitation. It is dangerous to suppress the truth of God when it's been given to you. Romans 1.18 says it perfectly. For the wrath of God... That's the orge of God. That is the simmering anger of God when people reject, 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 reject. Is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The most loving thing you can do is tell people the truth. I'm not telling, you don't have to have an attitude. You know, get right or get left. You're not going to win points there. Or beat somebody over the head with a hammer. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. No, you do it with gentleness and respect. You're wooing them as the Holy Spirit has wooed you. As God has drawn you. You're just giving them the truth. And with a loving heart, you're, con you're conveying the information. Not a condemning heart, a loving heart. The most loving thing you can do is tell people the truth. And the truth is this. Know who Messiah is. Who is Jesus to you? Is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist? Is he Jeremiah? Is he one of the prophets? Who is he to you? Hopefully you can say he is the Christ. The son of the living God. He is everything to me. Obey, number two, obey Messiah's commands. He has told us to obey his commands. And number three, do not suppress these truths. And the greatest commandment is this, love. By all means, know Jesus as your Savior and love God and love 
people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. Your word is truth. You have not written these things for the fun of it. You have written them that we may take them seriously and apply them to our lives. And Lord, right now, I ask that you speak to each heart that is in here. Every person in here has heard your word. Every person in here has been moved by some part of this talk in some way. And I ask you to speak to each person that they not just hear, but heed the word, do what it says. And today, Lord, I ask that you would search the hearts of each person here, whether they know you as their savior or not, that you speak to them right now in the right directly into their hearts, their inner being, and just say to them, you need me. And if you hear that voice, would you please respond by saying, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I commit my life to you. I place my trust in you, Jesus, as my sin bearer. I receive your free gift of salvation. If you do that today, you are born again of the Spirit, and your journey starts. You start as a baby and start to mature as you learn more and more about your great God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time, Lord, that you have given us today. In Jesus' name, amen.